You should have your Bible turned to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. What a delightful, what a delightful service this has been. Thank you for all. Thank you for that beautiful offertory. That was such a beautiful piece. So beautifully done. That stuff makes our Christmas, doesn't it? It's Christmas. And during Advent, our Christmas series is from one of the most beautiful places in the Bible, Luke chapter 1 and 2. And we call the series The Birth of Jesus. And we love Christmas and we love everything about it. We love Christmas gifts. We love Christmas decorations. We love Christmas music. We love Christmas pageants. We love brass at Christmas time. We love to hear people singing on the streets. There's a lot of, lot of good things to love. Did I mention Christmas food? We love Christmas food. And we love Christmas travels because they lead to Christmas visits. And Luke chapter 1 and 2 is all about Christmas visits. Pastor Jordan, such a delight to hear you pastor the people and teach the word from a distance. We all get such delight in having you and your family here. We're so grateful for you. Thank the Lord for you. And those messages. So we had a message from Pastor Jordan on Gabriel making a couple of visits. Gabriel visits Zechariah in the most shocking and unusual way. And he announces that there's going to be a baby born to his elderly wife. And Zechariah is speechless. I waited two weeks to say that. <laughs> He's speechless. And he really is. And then Gabriel visits, after he visits Zechariah, he visits a young peasant teenage girl. And he tells her that she is going to have the Messiah. And she's a virgin. That was a visit. And now we have another visit when the young virgin visits the elderly pregnant lady. Mary visits Elizabeth. Raise your hand today if your name is Mary. Raise your hand if your name is Mary. We have Mary? Any Marys in the house? Yeah. Raise your hand if your name is Elizabeth. I know we, yeah, there's a, I knew we'd have an Elizabeth. Any other Elizabeths? Now, these are two beautiful Bible names, two beautiful Bible characters, and they're meeting each other here in the most unusual way, but it's really not a meeting of two people, is it? It's a meeting of four people. Mary is going to travel the dangerous route 90 to 100 miles to go from Nazareth to what we would call today the eastern suburbs of Jerusalem, the old country east of Jerusalem, to where Zechariah and Elizabeth live. She's going to travel that dangerous route two or three days, going to visit Elizabeth. And as you, you, you weren't paying attention to the Bible reading today, so I'll read it again. You were distracted, weren't you? That was on purpose. We want you to be distracted with babies here all the time. 
And uh, we don't apologize for that. So in those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in, Ju- in Judah. By the way, sometimes you'll hear Judah, and other times you'll hear Judea, and they're the same place. It's a region that includes Jerusalem and the area south of Jerusalem, and the Hebrew rendering is Judah, and the Greek rendering is Judea. So the same place. To a hill town in Ju- Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. I, there are so many things I would love to know about this that the Bible doesn't say. My sanctified imagination goes wild when I read stories like this. I want to know the full emotional context of what is happening. I mean, we have what we need. It's the Word of God. But aren't you curious about some things like, how did Elizabeth know that Mary was pregnant? She hadn't been pregnant that long. It had been announced to her by an angel. Mary knew. Mary still unmarried. Pregnant, did God tell Elizabeth? Was there more dialogue than what's recorded here? Was Elizabeth so perceptive that she perceived this spiritually? If that's the case, this would have been a powerful and miraculous confirmation for Elizabeth to say to Mary, that baby that you have. The Bible doesn't say, but it certainly makes you think. There's no question that this was a Powerful confirmation to Mary. If you got news like this, who would you tell it to? A lot of people would say, uh, maybe make fun of you. If you got news like this, oh, I'm a virgin and I'm pregnant. Oh, the average person would say, I bet you are. They, 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 they might mock you. Uh, they might quietly nod and privately doubt you. That would be pretty common, wouldn't it? I mean, we might even be among the people that would say, sure, you know, we would say, oh, yeah. Then we'd walk away and go, did you hear what she said? Joseph was struggling with it. And he was a good man, a righteous man. And he was struggling with what to do about this. So you might think, who would I talk to? And then maybe it would come to your mind, I know, I have a relative and she's godly. She's a righteous. She and her husband have a godly home and they're righteous people. I'll go there. If anybody would understand, Elizabeth will understand. That's, that's my theory. She visits, I think, to, because God in his kindness and mercy is going to give Mary a deeper confirmation that what the angel said is really true. Because he loves her. That's what I think. So Elizabeth exclaims in verse 42, it's recorded, with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And now we know that Elizabeth has some remarkable theology. She recognizes that Mary's not just pregnant with a baby, but with a baby who is God and who is her Lord. Kyrios, the word Lord. And why would she come to me? 
Elizabeth could be saying, thanks for coming and visiting me. I'm old and pregnant. Let's talk about me. Let's talk about my baby. Let's talk about what happened to me. Let's talk about what happened to my husband. She immediately pivots and says, that baby that you have, you're blessed. He's blessed. Why would, he, why would my Lord come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Don't miss this. Elizabeth's speaking truth here. Everything she says is just speaking truth. She says, the one who believes that God does what he said is blessed. And that was true then, and that is true now. Those who believe that God will do what he said will be blessed. Those that come from them will be blessed. We have a, re a record here of a visit from Mary to Elizabeth and the first meeting of John the Baptist and of the Lord Jesus. Elizabeth focuses on her Lord, and she's just a model of a Christian friend. Can, can I take this uh, opportunity to remind you of how important it is to have a prayer partner, a Christian friend, someone who understands the work of the Lord, someone who's open to the work of the Lord, someone who is quick to pray, quick to point to what God is doing, quick to believe in what God has said. It's the kind of person that you know, oh, I'll tell them, they will understand. They're a spiritually, spiritually minded person. This is the kind of friend you want to have. And this is the kind of friend you want to be. And, and teenage girls, can I say to you, young women, um, don't think of Mary as an older lady in, or even a middle-aged lady in the church. No, this would not be true. She was just a young woman, a very young woman. And it's encouraging to think that a young woman who's even a teen can be devout in her faith. She can be pure in her heart and body. She can be devoted to the Lord. She can be knowledgeable in the Scripture. We don't even know if Mary could read, but we do know that Mary knew the Word. And when she does speak in a minute, we're going to hear her song. It's laced with Scripture. She knows the scripture. She's devoted to the Lord, and she's willing to do what God says, even though it is hard. So she is exemplary. No, we don't venerate Mary. We don't worship Mary. That wouldn't be appropriate. Mary didn't. This is not what this text is about. But it is commendable. And for generations, we say she's blessed and an example to us. And we appreciate that. And she points to Jesus, and so we worship Jesus. And she needed a Savior. She calls him my Savior. She was a sinner saved by grace, like you and I are sinners saved by grace. Elizabeth knows Jesus when he's present. John the Baptist knows Jesus when he's present. Oh, the inexplicable joy it is when in your deepest spirit you recognize who Jesus is. And when you recognize the presence of the incarnate Christ, is it this way with you? Does your heart just leap with joy when you think about Jesus? You just feel joy when you think about Jesus? 
Does it make you want to sing when you think about it? We're in the presence of Jesus. Does it just kind of like make everything else smaller? And this is larger. When you hear the Jesus story, doesn't it just put the foundation under your life and strengthen you against whatever it is you have to face? That you know you go out into a hostile world, a friend of Jesus. Isn't it just encouraging and doesn't it make you leap for joy yourself? John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, and now we know his mother was filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit, and we know that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth refers to Jesus as her Lord, as we mentioned, and that only could have been revealed to her by the Lord. I do think Mary has a problem. I think she's concerned in her soul, and maybe that's why she visits Elizabeth. And then we notice that in her very, the very first word out of her mouth is, been, is a song, and it's been recognized by Christian people throughout the ages as one of the most beautiful songs ever sung. And it's a song that magnifies the Lord. From the deepest place in her, she magnifies the Lord. When I study the Bible, a passage like this, I always look for the sweet spot. I always look for the spot that the kind of literary, that, that the literature points to. And, and in my opinion, this is it. He says, what does she say? My soul magnifies the Lord. I may have a, I may have a difficult problem, but I, but I have a big God. My soul magnifies the Lord. I may have a deep concern, but I have a big God. People may doubt me, but I know God, and he's a big God. She, she has a friend who is willing to magnify the Lord with her. Blessed is the man or the woman who has friends who have known heartache, like barrenness, like Elizabeth did, and yet been touched by God and filled with his spirit, and they know that God is real, and they affirm what God is doing when they see it, and they rejoice with you. I so want to be that person, like Elizabeth. She had the good sense to act the right way when she was given this news. You notice that she doesn't magnify her friend. Mary doesn't magnify her friend. She doesn't magnify John the Baptist. She doesn't magnify her husband. She could have said, Joseph, I'm so blessed to have this guy, this understanding guy, and he's a righteous guy, and I'm looking forward to it. She doesn't doesn't even mention him. She doesn't magnify herself. It's a mistake to magnify Mary. It, Mary's magnifying Jesus. And so we should follow her example and magnify Jesus. And so notice that she doesn't magnify her enemies. She doesn't say, oh, I'm a terrible oppressed girl. I live under the, you know, the boot of Rome. She didn't even mention that. She doesn't magnify the political circumstances around her. She doesn't magnify the good things in her life. She doesn't magnify the bad things in her life. She doesn't magnify her problems. She doesn't make her problems bigger than they are. She doesn't magnify her hurts. It's epidemic to magnify your hurts today. It's everybody's excuse not to obey God, but I've been hurt. But all throughout the Bible, people will hurt, but they magnified their God. They didn't magnify their hurts. What does she do? This is the sweet spot. From deep within her soul, she magnifies the Lord. Yesterday, I went to church twice. 
Full house both times. Full, every seat was full yesterday at Bethel. We always want to fill the church and preach the gospel. But like, not like that. Church was full yesterday because Jen Good went to be the Lord and people from our church and all the community showed up and filled every seat. And when we shared the gospel, Keith said to me in preparation for his wife's funeral, we want you to preach the gospel. She wants you to preach the gospel. This is the way it always is for a pastor when devout people lose a loved one. They always tell me, we want you to preach the gospel. We want you to tell people about Jesus. Jen would want you to tell people about Jesus. You know there's something right about that. When people are grieving and they have a big problem, but they have an even bigger God. And then Cheryl Veit's mother, Norma, 99. Did I say that right? She is Norma. Is that right? Is that right? Norma. She passed and the church was full. You're not supposed to have a full church when you die at 99. It's not the way it usually works, is it? We always say, well, they outlived all their friends. But she did something, right? Because the place was full. Every seat. Cheryl, can I just say this? What a, I was, it probably sounds funny. I was so proud of you yesterday. When you, Neil, wasn't she something, stood up and with incredible poise and a clear testimony, gave honor to the Lord Jesus. It was a, go get him. So proud of you. And the pastor got up. They have a fine pastor. His name's Rob Stewart at the Countryside Bible Church. And he preached, and they had a beautiful eulogy and all kinds of interesting stories and all kinds of interesting accolades and stories about a remarkable lady, Christian lady. The pastor said this. He said, when you leave today, I don't want you to be thinking about Norma. I want you to be thinking about God. And he was right. And that's what she would have said too. I want you to leave here thinking about God. Mary doesn't magnify the bad people in her life or the good people in her life or herself. She magnifies the Lord in song. And I want to show you a dozen powerful things that happen when your soul magnifies the Lord. Put on your track shoes because we are moving on. A dozen powerful things that happen when your soul magnifies the Lord. And the notes are online if you want them. When God is big, here's Mary, she's young, she's powerless, she's misunderstood, she's sinful, she's poor, she's oppressed, she's a peasant girl, but her soul magnifies the Lord. Her God is big, and when the deepest part of you is open to who God is and what he's doing, you can expect things to happen in your life. Like one, your joy is deep. Look at verse 47. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary the sinner saved by grace magnifies the Lord first by saying, I have joy because he's forgiven my sins. He's my savior. He saved me from my sins. And so will you. When you magnify the Lord, your joy will be deep. Second, your sin and shame and guilt will be swept away. Look at verse 47. My spirit rejoices in God who is my savior. In verse 50 his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She says, I've received this mercy, and it's for everybody who follows me too. Your sins, your shame, your guilt will be swept away. Mercy, when your God is big, mercy is magnified. When you see who God is, 
You have joy and you know you're forgiven. These are, that's enough right there. But there are 10 more I've, I've noticed here. Number three, you have God's full attention. Do you, I'm sorry, but can I ask you a question? Do you love attention? Raise your hand if you love attention. Thank you. I'll just admit, I, I like people to pay attention to me. Did you know that already? I, I mean, okay, I just, I, that's true. I like you. If you ignore me, I have a problem with you. I mean, it's not right, but it's just true. I'm confessing sin. I'm just saying, I'm not, I probably should be more contrite acting about it. But I, I get a part of me like, sure. I mean, but, but you know how often people are busy and they got their own stuff and they don't pay attention to you. And maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel that keenly. When you kind of long for attention, I used to think when I was a kid, that's what attention deficit disorder meant. I just need more attention. <laughs> Makes sense to me? Give Kenny more attention. We're going to be fine. That's not what it means. It means Kenny's having trouble paying attention. But don't tell me that because I just need more attention. Well, here's what's amazing is the person whose God is big has God's attention. And in his own remarkable way, you have his full attention. You have his absolute, that's beautiful. What happens when your God is big and when you magnify the Lord? Your joy is deep and your sin and your shame and your guilt are swept away by his mercy. Somebody say amen right there. Amen. Say amen. Yeah, go ahead. You can, I'm just telling you, that'd be a good spot right there. Uh, say amen. And you have God's full attention. This is verse 48. He says, he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Mary says, he saw me. <laughs> And your blessing is enduring. He says, she says, from now on, she sings, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is a blessing that's enduring. That's also what happens when your God is big and when you exalt the Lord and when you magnify the Lord. Your joy is deep. Your shame is gone. Your guilt is gone. God's mercy is great. You have God's full attention. Your blessing is enduring. Your understanding of his sovereign power, his absolute holiness, and his tender care grow. You see how good and how big and how intimately involved he is. What if God isn't good? What if God isn't great? What if God isn't interesting? Any of those would be tragic, but none of them are true. God is great, and God is good, and God is interested. And she says this in her song. You see it there? Listen, what she says in verse 49. He who is mighty, God is powerful, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He's good. He's holy. He's absolutely good and holy, and he's absolutely powerful, and he's willing to work in your life. Aren't you glad you came to church today? That's, that's sweet to know. Doesn't that make you want to sing? Doesn't that make you want to praise him when you magnify the Lord? You understand his sovereign power, his absolute holiness, his tender care. Number six, when you magnify the Lord, you have confidence his mercy will be available for the generations that follow you, and that's encouraging. That's what she says. You see that? He has shown, his mercy is for those, verse 40, 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So the little ones that can't even pronounce all the words right yet are going to also know his mercy. 
the little people who are trying to find their voice, trying to find their way. We're not going to live long enough to help them when they need us someday. We'll, we'll be gone. And if churches like this continue, it'll be on them. And we'll just be a memory. What are they going to do without us? They're going to depend on their big God whose mercy goes from generation to generation. It leaps over generations. This is a promise that he makes over and over. Mary picks up on this and sings it. Her God is big. She knows that his mercy will be available for the generations that follow. This is a multi-generational blessing. That's number six. Number seven, when our God is big, we magnify the Lord. Our enemies are small. It minimizes our enemies. It reduces them to manageable size. Have you ever like looked at the moon and you can put your thumb up and you can block the whole moon out with your thumb because your thumb is too close to your face? And sometimes our enemies block out our God. Our problems are bigger than God. And we need to make God closer and our enemies will get smaller. You got problems, but you have a big God and he's much bigger than your problems and so it was with Mary. What God was doing was so big, and who he, who he is is so big. Her, her enemies are minimized. And so are yours. And number eight, your thinking will be right. In verse 50, 51, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He says he can overcome your enemies. This is where this song turns. He exalts the humble and the poor. And he puts down the wealthy and the powerful oppressor. What she's saying, in the thoughts of his heart. So he has these lofty ideas. He may even have letters behind his name. He may be considered wise and smart. He may be a culturally elite. He may cross all of his cultural T's and dot all of his cultural I's. And everyone thinks the world of him. But God says his secret thoughts are folly. But this simple peasant girl and her secret thoughts are aligned with the one true God of the universe. And so it is with you. Your thinking is right when your God is big. We're not vulnerable to foolishness of the godless, learned, and elite. Because when we know, if we can see who God is, then our thinking will be clear and true. Number nine, we'll be satisfied in him, look at verse 53. He's brought down, verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate, and he's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he's sent away empty. So there's a series of these comparisons. Matter of fact, all of Luke so far has been like this. It's been reversal comparison. We'll get to that in a minute. But in this particular case, she's talking about being hungry and then being satisfied. And she says, the one whose God is big is satisfied in him. Verse 53. Number 10, everything is put right. This is a general thing for the whole passage. But look at verse 53. He's filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away empty. Notice the contrast in the passage. In the the broader context, you you see there's there's strong and weak are compared. And God favors the weak. And then the rich and the poor are compared, and God favors the poor. And then the full and the hungry are compared, and God 
favors the hungry. And the proud and the humble are compared, and God is on the side of the humble. And the powerful and the common are compared, and God exalts the common person, an old woman whose people are ignoring her. She'll never have a baby, and a young, poor virgin, the young and the old. You might be here today thinking, I'm, I'm old. But your God is ever young, and he has eternity to work with. So yes, you are old. But that's not, that's not the end of things if you have eternal life, if, you, if you're old. And then there's the one who's a virgin and the one who can't conceive. And then in all of these stories, in the story of the whole Bible, and it's emphasized in Luke 1 and 2, there is, the, there is this grand reversal. Grace reverses things. This starts out in the reversal of primogeniture in Genesis. The older is, the younger is chosen over the older. The secondborn is chosen over the firstborn. Right from the beginning of the Bible, it's like, what are you doing? What's going on? It's like, hint, hint, there's this hint. It comes from the very beginning, it's foreshadowed in the very beginning of the Bible, and it's carried throughout the Bible, that God is going to do a great reversal. And Mary gets this. Mary is a part of this, and she sings about this. The thing that you think is wonderful, God says, isn't wonderful. And the thing that you think is humble, God's going to exalt that because that's what grace does. Grace reverses everything. Another way of saying it is this. Everything's not right, and not everything is right, but God is going to put things back on their feet in Christ. God's going to reverse everything in Christ. And 11, number 11, what else happens when your God is big and you magnify the Lord? You see his hand in history and in prophecy. And that's what she does. Her, this is teenage girl goes from talking about how God has treated her to talking about politics and history and world events and history and prophecy. <laughs> she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She starts talking about the history of Israel. And this is also prophetic. So it's historic and it's prophetic. This is what happens when the simplest person, the simplest poor peasant girl has a big view of God. She sees God in history, in the past. She sees God in prophecy, in the future. And she sings about it. And you see that he keeps his covenant promises to Israel and to Mary and to Israel and to us and to you. Can you believe I'm at number 12 already? You can go about your daily business with mindful ease and simple trust. I think it's interesting how this ends. It's kind of anticlimactic. She goes soaring through this song and then there's this little commentary. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and then returned home. Why three months? Do you ever think about that? Why three months? Well, how pregnant? Well, you know the question of how pregnant are you is you either pregnant or you're not pregnant is the science there. But you know how we say that in terms of chronology. <laughs> She's six months along. That's what I'm saying. Elizabeth is six months along. Here's my theory. And of course, if you read on, you see the next thing that happens is the baby's born, I think, Mary helps Elizabeth. Can you imagine a young virgin watching this gestation, watching this time 
of development and helping and having fellowship and encouraging and supporting one another. It is a beautiful thing, almost too sacred to talk about publicly. When an, when an older woman who's been through raising children or bearing and raising children helps a younger woman who hasn't yet born or raised children. And what a sweet thing when a young woman treats an older woman with courtesy and dignity and helps her. And together, the women do what only women can do. And they wade through death to bring life into the world. And there's just something sacred about that in the most common circumstances. But these circumstances aren't common. It's the forerunner of Christ and the Christ of the world. When your God is big, everything else is pretty manageable. Everything else is small. So we don't magnify our problems from deep within and our sorrows. We magnify God. We don't magnify ourselves. It would be foolish just to magnify our puny accomplishments. It'd be foolish to magnify our country over God. Or even our family, our husband, our wife, or our children. Or, or, or to magnify our college. I had a lot of trouble getting through college money-wise. When I finally got to get through an actual program at Moody, to be honest, I was proud of it because I loved Moody, and I still do, and I was proud of it. And some of the people at Moody, Moody is well-known, and so there can be, I kind of detect sometimes kind of a pride, and they'll be talking. I was watching Founders Week. <laughs> And they were saying, the Moody Bible Institute this and the Moody Bible Institute that. And I was, I was kind of proud, like, I, I went there. I, I graduated from Moody. And I, I was proud of it. And I sensed the voice of the Holy Spirit when I was watching that, saying, don't ever say that again. It was just so clear to me. It was like, don't ever say that again. There are other people that have gone to other places, and I was there too. That's just one of my places. It was so clear to me that I literally... Never said that again. I'm super grateful to God, but it was, it was like a, a eureka moment. That's wonderful that you're grateful that God let you do that. But God is at work in so many things. He's great, and those places just serve him. And it's true about Bethel, and this was a revelation in the night. Last night, I love this church. You know, I say nice things about it. And I felt like the Lord told, you know, we're not here to build a great church. We're here just to be a faithful church to exalt a great God. That's much better, isn't it? There's a lot of pressure if we have to build a great church. <laughs> we don't. We are just common folks. Like Mary was a simple woman who exalted a great God. That's wonderful when you think about it. We don't magnify our college. We don't magnify our church. We magnify the Lord. And there was a young woman. Her name was Sarah and her fiancé wrote about her. It, it's an interesting story. I, I kind of like it because the girl's name was Sarah. She's a young teenage, teenage girl with a remarkable godliness about her. Everybody recognized it, especially her fiancé. And, and incidentally, her name was Pierpont. So it was interesting to me. Her name was Sarah. I never met her because she lived a while ago. But her name was, was actually Sarah Pierpont. And her fiancé wrote about her. He was very famous for journaling, and he wrote about her. He wrote, they say there's a young lady in New Haven who is loved of that great being 
who made and rules the world. And she will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly. And she seems to be always full of joy and of pleasure. And no one knows for what she loves, for, for what she loves to be alone walking in the fields and groves and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. Her fiance wrote about that. And a few years later, they were married. His name was Jonathan, you know, Jonathan Edwards. And Sarah Pierpont, they had 12 children together. He was, she was just a young woman, but he noticed her remarkable, how big her God was, and how she had intimacy with God. And every preacher, when he preaches, should have an aim for his sermon. And we studied this passage, and this sweet spot stood out to me. This, my soul magnifies the Lord. And I thought about you. And what is it that you're facing? And what is it that's troubling you? And what is it that makes you sad? And what is it that threatens you? What is it that makes you feel guilty? I don't know what it is. Here's what I do know. God is bigger than that. God is bigger than that. And when your God is big, all these good things just flow into your life and spill over into the other people and spill down through the generations because God is that great when your God is big. And God moves in you to trust him and obey him. And he fulfills his word in you. And then blessing and praise spill out of your life. And in the face of weakness or poverty or hunger or humility or disappointment or commonness or youth or oppression or abuse or sinful people all around you, it doesn't matter because your God is great. And you magnify the Lord. Does your soul, does your soul magnify the Lord? If we opened you up and looked into the deepest part of you, would we find God is big there? God is big there. Might come and pray for us. We have prayer partners that are going to come and stand here. We also are available to you all through the week and happy to give you counsel. If you're a lady and you like to have a lady, a godly, wise lady, give you counsel of many godly, wise men and women here that would be happy to pair you up with somebody. Please, if you don't know the Lord, let us show you how you can know the Lord. If you need somebody to pray with you or you're, you're concerned, we can help you or we can help you set up with a counselor that can help you. Would you stand together today and would you receive a blessing?